This podcast was recorded on Thursday, October 18th at 12.05 p.m. Eastern Daylight Time. You know, there is a small group of billionaires trying to figure out how they get to Mars. I'd like to send them sooner than later so they're not in our way. But saving life on Earth and protecting this biosphere is something that most of humanity is on board with the idea that we're not going to Mars. We have to actually preserve life on Earth. United Nations report is once again forcing political leaders to confront alarming realities about climate change. The planet is warming much faster than anticipated, say the 90 authors of a study by the UN's Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change. Experts say that we have until 2030 to avoid catastrophe. The melting polar ice, the droughts, the mega storms. By as early as 2040, just 22 years from now, the UN says global food supplies will be threatened by increasing droughts and heat waves. Famine and rising sea levels could trigger a global migration crisis. If carbon emissions don't significantly drop, Earth is on a path to warm by four degrees Celsius by the year 2100. At that point, some reports suggest the summer weather in Ottawa would average around 45 degrees. Forest fires would be the norm. There may not be enough hydro for power. And to top it all off, the melting permafrost might release the carbon stored in it. This is really serious stuff. We have a global emergency. And you, you use a phrase like that and some people uh, immediately say, okay, calm down, you know, that can't be that bad, but it is. The scientists say if countries make good on their promises, the Earth's temperature is likely to rise by only two degrees Celsius but they're hoping that collective action can limit global warming to 1.5 degrees. But it would require changes of an unprecedented scale. It means deep emission reductions in all sectors, the use of a wide range of technologies, behavior changes, and a significant increase of investment in low carbon options. We are to be blunt, living beyond our means, and no politician wants to tell us that. I'm Althea Raj, and you're listening to Follow Up, a HuffPost Canada politics podcast. This week, some politicians did want to talk about climate. For six hours, three dozen MPs took part in an emergency debate on the UN's report, talking mostly to an empty chamber until midnight. Time is not on our side. History may not be on our side, but by God, we better be on our own side. From what I've seen in this house, people will follow if citizens demand it, and we need citizens to demand it. And we need citizens to ask for greater leadership from those in this house. At the end of the day, we've got one planet. One planet. So we need to figure out how we are going to save that planet. Today, we're asking how we can avoid this doomsday scenario and whether politics will get in the way of better public policy. Environment and Climate Change Minister Catherine McKenna will be with us, as will the leader of the Green Party, Elizabeth May. Uh, I am becoming increasingly alarmed. I live in the north. I see the changing climate around me. For a, for a person to be able to see in geological time changes, not just over their lifetime, but changes over years, uh, is deeply disturbing. Northern Ontario NDP MP Charlie Angus was one of several MPs who stopped to talk to our reporter, Zian Lum, about the UN's climate report. I look at my children. 
and their children and what future are we going to leave them if we sit around and continue to play games? This is the crisis of our time and I'm not seeing uh, the urgency in Parliament to act. We need to show uh, a willingness to take this on at a national and international level. I'm Garner Jenis, Member of Parliament for sure, Park Fort Saskatchewan. Does the alarm over climate change keep you up at night? Well, there's a lot of different topics here to, to get uh, passionate about. And, um, I mean, uh, it's usually my kids that are keeping me up at night <laughs> as, as opposed to specific issues. Um, uh, there's, but, but this is something that, that uh, should concern us uh, and should engage us in a serious way in finding serious responses. I think absurd that some politicians assume that a response to climate change necessitates this one particular uh, strategy that, that I just don't think is very effective. Mark Miller, Member of Parliament, uh, Ville-Marie-le-Sud-Ouest-Île-des-Sœurs. I come from a province where this is top of mind. Uh, Quebecers generally are very, very supportive of climate action. In fact, in my f recent flyer, that's their number one issue, which is not something you'd expect from a purely urban riding, uh, where it may not that sense of immediacy may not be felt, but certainly it is a top of mind in, in, in my riding. Environment and Climate Change Minister Catherine McKenna agreed to speak with us this week. She gave us a few minutes of her time in her Parliamentary Hill office, sandwiched between meetings with Stephen Guilbeault, the former head of Equiterre and a rumoured Liberal candidate, and Goldie Hyder, the head of the Business Council of Canada. Thanks for doing this. I really appreciate it. That's great. Um, you called the report sobering reading. You mentioned that a few times. Um, and I was struck by your comments in the House of Commons on Monday in which you basically said, we have a plan, we're sticking with it, everybody come on board to our plan. But the report clearly says you need to do more than the plan you have. So why not do more? Uh, so, you know, we're, we have a comprehensive plan. We spent a whole year negotiating this plan uh, and now we're in the implementing phase. And so we need to be more ambitious. We know that the Paris Agreement actually requires every five years that you ratchet up ambition. But what we really need to do is actually lock in what we've committed to doing. Um, and we owe that to Canadians. And so that is everything. When I think about how do you reduce emissions, and I spend all my time thinking about how do you reduce emissions in a smart way. I mean, you look at the transportation sector. So investments in public transportation, investments in EV charging infrastructure, industry. We know that industry, there's a lot of pollution um, coming from industry. So everything from phasing out coal, which is hugely important to having a price on pollution for big polluters, uh, to the oil and gas sector, methane emissions from the oil and gas sector, retrofits for, for business, um, the building sector, um, we need to build better. So we have a new net zero building standard, um, investments, energy efficiency, our investments in social housing, making sure that everything is energy efficient, our investments in nature, we're doing new environmental assessments, we have to look at climate. And so we are doing things across the board. Do we need to do more? Absolutely. Uh, when I was in the Paris Agreement, uh, I was advocating to uh, making sure that we were striving for 1.5. Um, that is really important. Um, and the first thing we need to do, though, is make sure we do these things. So, for example, a price on pollution is really important because there is a cost to pollution. We're all paying the price right now, and we need to make sure that it's not free to pollute. Do you accept the report's findings? Like, do you believe that the picture it paints is accurate? 
Uh, I do. I mean, I we certainly I certainly believe in scientists and that we have to make sure that we're listening to scientists. And it's you know the the picture is quite bleak. Um, it talks about. Uh, 30 years from now. So if you think of a kid that's 10 years old, will be 40. Um, and they, there's, you know, discussions of acute food shortages, climate refugees, um, much bigger storms that have impacts, droughts. And, you know, it's a wake up call, but this isn't all new. Um, no, but that's why I, I ask because, you know, you say, you know, you need to do more. Then at the same time, you know, we had the prime minister just a few weeks ago uh, with great fanfare announced the new LNG plant in British Columbia, the purchase of the pipeline. And as you know, we can't meet the targets. We're not even uh, on the path to meeting the targets we already have. How can we adopt these economic policies and still meet targets that are more stringent so that in the words of yourself and other liberal MPs, you know, the planet is still there for our children? Uh, so I should be clear that we have a plan to meet our targets. Um, there's a number of measures like investments in nature, um, the investments in public transportation that we're making with provinces, the investments in innovation, that you can't exactly know how much you're going to get the reductions, but we have committed to meeting the targets. Um, we're in a transition. A transition takes decades. Um, yes, do we want to do things as fast as we can? We do. But, you know, the idea that you you have to do things in a smart way, um, that you have to show that you can still create good jobs, grow the economy while protecting the environment, and you can, um, but it requires being thoughtful about it. And if you just say we're going to shut things down because, you know, some people would like to do that, you run into a situation where you have no buy-in for the public, and then you get nothing done. And I don't I know if that they're saying they don't want to shut things down. I don't want to interrupt you, but I think what they're saying is stop growing. Well, so let's, I think you got to take each of these topics a bit differently. So LNG, um, the BC governments, it knows their emissions from, uh, you know, significant emissions from LNG, although I would say this is the most energy efficient LNG plant in the whole world. Um, but when I look at problems, global problems, so we need to get countries off coal. Uh, one of the opportunities, of course, is renewables, but also LNG is certainly part of the solution. When you look at Alberta and you look at the pipeline, Alberta has the first ever hard cap in emissions in the world in a sector. Um, so we looked at our climate plan and how it fit, this pipeline fit within the climate plan. It's like a budget. Um, and But it allows you to spend more, if you wish, for your budget analogy until you get to the caps. Like You're not asking people to reduced, you're asking them to be more efficient, but you're still allowing the sector to be developed more than it is now. And I, I totally understand that, you know, people are like, well, how does this work? You have a pipeline, you say you're committed to climate action. We actually have a demand issue, <laughs> that there's still this demand around the world. And so we've seen that 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 oil just goes by rail. Um, do we need to do more? Yes. The government of Alberta has put a hard cap on emissions in the oil sands. They've also phased out coal. They've also put a price on pollution. They're also making historic investments in in in, um, uh, in renewables. Um, and they're doing a huge amount, which has actually enabled us to move on some of the many of the things we're moving on. But we have to bring people with us. And once you lock in your policies, you can be more ambitious. But I have to show that we can lock down what we've said we're going to do. Are you going to increase our targets when you go to Poland? 
Nope, <laughs> we have said we are going to achieve our targets. Um, my goal in Poland, actually this year, the real focus this year at Poland is to make sure that we have the rules for the Paris Agreement. Um, that is very hard right now. Um, we've lost the leadership of the United States. The rules are like the engine. We have the car, but if you don't have the engine, if you don't have rules about accountability and transparency, we're not going to be in a situation that we're going to see the billions turned into trillions that we need in terms of the investments in the, the cleaner future. So I've personally committed to doing that. We're working very hard with the Chinese and the European Union to bring everyone uh, together around these rules. Look, everyone is well aware that we are not tracking for 1.5. Um, we're, we're, you know, over two and a half degrees. Um, so we need to do more. But we also need to actually take the progress and we need to keep on pushing. And I, we need to be supporting developing countries who need investments. And we need to be supporting each other through Powering Past Coal to show what is possible, that you can phase out coal, but work workers can still have jobs. Um, and then we can get this done. I know that there's the impatience and I, you know, we could all just do this right away. It actually requires work every single day to figure out how you're going to take action through every single sector, whether it's transportation, buildings, industry, agriculture, and also the innovation piece is critically important because we need more solutions. Um, but you got to work across the board and it's really hard. And I, uh, I actually, though, I think Canadians understand this was a summer where we saw extreme weather. Um, they recognize that there's a cost uh, to our actions, to pollution, and that we need to uh, we need to do better. It scares me to let, to read this report and to know that we're not doing enough to meet it. I, you know, the report is, it is scary, it is sobering, but it's also a call to action. And I think it's a call to be very practical because it's not, it's not just about targets. I'm not saying that targets aren't important. It's actually about delivering. And that, you know, the problem like with targets is the Harper government had targets, um, but they never did anything to meet them. <laughs> so if you don't start putting in place the building blocks that enable you to do things in a cleaner way, you can't get better and faster. Um, and that's our goal. Our goal is it's a year, it's just a uh, a uh, year and a half since we had our climate plan. Obviously, there's been changes in the politics across Canada that conservative governments are now, you know, abandoning many of them. They had a cost on pollution um, and now they've abandoned that. So that has made it more challenging uh, for us. But like, for example, Ontario um, getting out of their climate plan meant uh, it was the equivalently equivalent of um, adding 30 new coal-fired plants. That's the impact. So that is that is disappointing and that is hard, but that is why we need to show leadership at the federal level. Um, and I actually like when people tell us to be more ambitious because I get it. You know, it is for our kids um, that we need to do this. So we will continue working every day, uh, listening to anyone's solutions about how we do this and working really hard, but also demonstrating to Canadians that, yes, the environment and the economy go together. Yes, we can do both and we need to do both. Thank you. Thank you. Catherine McKenna is Canada's Environment Minister. You heard her say that she's confident the country will meet its targets to cut emissions to 30% below what they were in 2005 by the year 2030. Right now, though, we are a long way off. Well, first of all, greenhouse gas emissions have yet to go down. That's Julie Gelfand, the Environment and Sustainable Development Commissioner. Last fall, I reported that Canada is not expected to meet its 2020 target for reducing greenhouse gas emissions, and that meeting the 2030 target will require significant effort and actions beyond those currently planned or in place. 
Galfin's report and those of auditors general from across the provinces predicted instead that by 2020, emissions are expected to rise to nearly 20% above the target. Coming up later. Yeah, I am kind of alone out there being a conservative voice on this issue. My conversation with Mark Cameron, Prime Minister Stephen Harper's former senior policy advisor, and a strong advocate for putting a price on carbon. And grab my coffee. Hi, it's Elizabeth May here, leader of the Green Party of Canada and member of parliament for Saanich Gulf Islands. Elizabeth May, thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. I want to start off by asking you what your main takeaways from this report were. Yeah. Well, it's been a, a, a highly anticipated report. The number one takeaway from the report is we can do it, which a lot of, uh, it, a lot of scientists are already saying that that ship has sailed. So nothing in this report was new to you? No, no. Nothing in the report was new to me because I pay a lot of attention to scientific reports as they're published. Let's face it, most politicians aren't scientists. So the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change was set up to advise politicians. So I've known now for a while that 1.5 is not a quote-unquote safe climate condition for for humanity. What was a relief to me, frankly, was that the IPCC found a pathway through our technologies, through our economies, through the physics and chemistry and everything to do with limiting conditions. And they said, we can hold to 1.5. The only missing ingredient is political will. So what does the government actually need to do? We need to have uh, much more vision and clarity about what what Canada looks like when we achieve what needs to be done. In terms of a target, it needs to be 45% below 2010 levels of emissions, 45% by 2030, and completely off fossil fuels by 2050. That makes it a lot more obvious that, for instance, buying a pipeline isn't a good idea. But this issue has to be about way more than pipelines. We have to 100% decarbonize electricity, which means we go to 100% renewables, which we can do. There's no technological, technical, or economic barrier to doing that. And then we can electrify our vehicle fleet. So, uh, you know, Canadians could say goodbye to the internal combustion engine. And that means that we also have to have uh, sustainable sources of biofuel for tractors and farm equipment and fisher, fishermen and so on. All of that is doable and a massive amount of work, which will create jobs right across the country in ensuring that our buildings are eco-efficient. I think that the weird thing is, I think that Justin Trudeau's uh, administration and Catherine McKenna in particular, particular are hobbled in being climate leaders by trying to pretend to be climate leaders and not doing everything that needs to be done. And the recalcitrant, and I have to say cynical and irresponsible politicians who want to say, we don't want a carbon tax as a tax on everything. That group of people undermine Kath McKenna, but she undermines, I mean, I don't mean to be personal about her, but the policies of this government undercut their good intentions because they're not bold enough. So ironically, I think climate leadership that's really clear 
will engage Canadians with far more support than mediocre policies. But the IPCC is clear. We have, a, we have one time only to hold global average temperature to a place that ensures our children can live on this planet and their children can live on this planet. And, and I'm, this is not hyperbole. This is what the scientists are now telling us. There's a point where it will be unlivable. But the types of changes that you're suggesting are far from the type of changes that the liberals are suggesting and very far from the types of changes that the conservatives are suggesting. We don't actually really know what the conservatives are going to suggest, but from listening to their arguments, you know, uh, there were two things, I think, that at least popped up to me in my mind. This idea that we are such a small piece of the pie if China, although China is moving with uh, carbon trading between some of its provinces, but if China's not on board, if the U.S., we heard U.S. President Donald Trump say that he's fully invested in coal and he doesn't plan to abide by the Paris Agreement, Brazil, I think the seventh largest emitter, uh, there looks like what will be their new president uh, also plans on pulling out of uh, the Paris Climate Accord. If all these big players are are not interested, why should Canada make any effort? Well, first, let me correct the record because China's very invested. China's building more renewable energy and has invested more money than any other country on Earth. That's why solar panels are so cheap because China stole the technology from Germany and is now producing uh, photovoltaic panels for rooftops that convert the sun directly to electricity. But the impact for climate change is that solar is cheaper than coal. So back to Trump and the United States. Trump has declared they're out of the Paris Accord, but they're not. They're at every negotiation. They haven't withdrawn. And the subnational governments, which is how everybody now refers to states and cities, and they're still on track. So the U.S. is actually doing better than Canada in reducing emissions, in fact. But the argument that we're small, so we shouldn't do anything, is so morally bankrupt. Did we decide when, you know, South Africa and the Commonwealth, Brian Mulroney is one of the reasons, I mean, a really big part of the reason that apartheid ended in South Africa. Canada may be small, but we punch above our weight. And it's this leadership piece for Canada that people are forgetting about. Catherine McKenna in Paris made a huge difference by being the first industrialized country to go to 1.5 degrees. If we hadn't done that, this report wouldn't have come out because we wouldn't have commissioned scientists to figure out if we could hold to 1.5 because the world's governments would have waved a little white flag over survival and decided to go with the more politically acceptable target of two. Two degrees we now know from this report is much more dangerous than we thought it was in 2015. The, the impacts of climate change are both faster and more severe than what we understood even in Paris three years ago. Canada has a lot of clout. And when we go to the next climate negotiations that start in early December in, believe it or not, the heart of the coal mining region of Poland, because the Polish government is not helpful, but we are going to be in Katowice, Poland, in the heart of a historical coal mining district. If Canada goes there and says, we're stepping up to the plate, our new target is what the IPCC demanded. 45% below 2010 levels by 2030. Germany, are you on board? EU countries, are you stepping up? New Zealand's already there. They stepped up. They changed their target after Paris. Uh, and So there's there are a few countries that are already leading. Canada so far has been in terms of delivery and target. We've been laggards. Per capita, we are huge emitters. We, you know, like we're 2% of global emissions, but we're less than half a percent of the world's population. So, yes, we're polluting way we're more than our fair 11. share. 
yeah. 11 after like Kuwait and Bahrain. We're, we're not good performers as much as we'd like to think we were. Elizabeth May, another um, criticism I hear from conservatives is that, you know, the UN cries wolf all the time. They've been saying that the world's going to end since the late 1980s. There's a report, every report comes out saying that it's doomsday and the math doesn't add up when you look at past predictions. So what do you say to that? I think the conservatives should read the reports they claim to have read because that's just not true. The UN IPCC reports have been consistent. These are negotiated documents that go through governments from around the world. The scientific advice has been consistently conservative. So when they say there's a margin for error, conservatives always grab the side of, oh, it, it, there's, there's uncertainty. It won't be as bad as they say it will. Uh, the uncertainty works the other way. It could be much worse than they say it will. Anyone who says that we're crying wolf uh, should hang their head in shame because they're threatening their own children's future by deliberate ignorance. And the thing about it is there are really wonderful conservatives who understand climate change. It's not like, like their whole caucus, but they've bought into this for political wedge issue reasons. Partisan wedge issue reasons are uh, toxic to good policy. You spoke about political will. You ended uh, your speech in the House on Monday by saying that, you know, you're Canadian parliamentarians and you were going to deliver on your duty. How optimistic are you that MPs and this government will deliver and do what's needed to prevent, in the words of the IPCC, basically catastrophic climate change? I'm optimistic because I have to be. We can't afford to lose this opportunity as humanity. Therefore, we will not lose this opportunity as humanity. Thank you very much. Thank you. Elizabeth May is the leader of the Green Party of Canada and the MP for Saanich Gulf Islands. After asking MPs to share their thoughts about global warming, my colleague Zian Lum ventured off Parliament Hill and into downtown Ottawa to hear from some younger voices. Hi, I'm Mackenzie and I'm in grade 10. So what do you think about climate change? Is it something that is genuinely alarming you? Yes. There's certain species of animals that are going endangered which are important to our wildlife, which we need. And they, like all the politicians say that stuff is going to happen, but they never really do a change. They just keep saying that it's happening, and it's like closer than we think. So they need to like step up. Uh, I'm Katie, and I'm in grade 12. Do you care about climate change? Uh, yes, it's important. And I don't think it's a good thing that it's happening. What would you like to see done? Um, I guess trying to see us work towards a more sustainable environment so instead of maybe using plastics that um, aren't good for the environment we can use biodegradable ones that would help um, I guess with the environment and help in the oceans which would just help with a cleaner and better world. My first name is Alice and my grade is 12 so I'm almost be a, an adult yeah. Is this something you and your friends talk about, that you and your family talk about? Of course, like uh, I know nowadays uh, this climate change all, like, affects the global warming 
and all, always like the the weather gets hotter and it affects the Arctic also like the polar bears uh, lose their like um, how to say called the habitat so that like they will not be survive if it continues. But is this an issue that you're paying close attention to in the next election? Yep, I will like vote it if if it is possible. I think the majority of the Canadian public believes that climate change is a real issue and that the federal government and provincial governments have to do something about it. So I think they want to hear that, that uh, people have a plan. And I think they also want to hear that it's not going to cost them an arm and a leg and it's not going to make Canada's economy uncompetitive. Hi, my name is Mark Cameron. I am the executive director of Canadians for Clean Prosperity. Canadians for Clean Prosperity is a nonpartisan, not-for-profit advocacy organization that works on market-based solutions to environmental problems. We've been very involved in the debate around carbon pricing in Canada for the past several years. Uh, my own background, I live here in Ottawa. I have been involved in, in federal politics for a long time, worked for uh, about 15 years on the Hill, including five years for the Prime Minister of Canada's Director of Policy and Research. Mark, thank you for joining us. I appreciate it. Thank you. About a few weeks ago, two, three weeks ago, your um, organization came out with a report. Tell us what you found. Well, two things. We found that the costs of carbon pricing, if the federal government implements the carbon pricing backstop, which is the carbon tax measure they will bring in in any province that doesn't have a carbon price of its own, uh, that the costs will not be as expensive as many of the critics have been saying. Uh, furthermore, the federal government has talked about refunding revenues to households as dividends or rebates. And we wanted to look at what would happen if the federal government simply took all the revenues from the carbon tax backstop and sent it directly back to households. And what we found out, actually to our surprise, is that at almost every income level, every family type, uh, households would end up getting more money back than they paid out. Uh, so for your average family uh, in Ontario, average income is sort of sixty dollars to $80,000. They would pay about $300 in carbon costs for gasoline home heating. They would receive back about $500 in the rebate, and so they'd end up about $200 ahead. You said to your surprise. To our surprise that it was uh, as generous as, as it turned out to be. We figured that it would certainly compensate everyone who was you know, middle income or below, but the fact that it was more generous, even for households up to you know, $150,000 a year range, were still receiving money back under this system. How is it possible that uh, individuals pay more at the gas pump, pay more for home heating, and then in the end get more money back in their pocket? Well, the reason is that all of the revenues that's collected under this federal carbon tax backstop will go into the central pool or pot and then get sent out to individuals. But it's not only individuals that are paying, it's also being paid by businesses, it's being paid by you know municipalities and universities and others. Uh, and under this system where the rebates are only going to individuals, uh, those other businesses and organizations don't, don't get a refund. So essentially, uh, there is a bit of a subsidy from, uh, from business and the public sector to the, the household and individual. 
Earlier this year, the environment minister um, announced that she's changing the regulations with uh, large emitters. Um, and the argument from the conservative side is, well, you know, you're asking people to pay more in their own pocket, but uh, you're lessening the burden on heavy emitters. What do you respond to that? That's the the what's called the output-based pricing system, which is basically for those large emitters that are particularly in export industries like cement and steel and oil and gas that are selling products at an international price to make sure that they stay competitive. Uh, and I actually support that. Both the Alberta system and the Ontario system that they had under cap and trade actually had more generous subsidies for business than, than the federal system will. I do think that business should be paying something. Uh, but we also want to make sure that we're not hurting those internationally competitive businesses. Do you believe that the government is equipped to um, follow through with this program in an efficient manner? I mean, you hear voices of people saying, well, there's no way it's going to be tax neutral. There's no way the bureaucracy can can do this, that this program is going to be another boondoggle. I don't think it's that complicated for two reasons. Uh, the collection of the carbon price is essentially done through existing fuel excise taxes. So there's already federal tax on gasoline, air, airplane fuel, natural gas, et cetera. So it's simply a matter of adjusting the tax codes to add the carbon tax to that to those prices, which are already already known, already taxed, already, already tracked. Uh, and then on the distribution of the revenue side, the government already has systems for giving out the Canada Child uh, Benefit and the, the GST credit and so on. So they already have those systems in place. The only place where it's somewhat complicated is dealing with the large uh, emitting firms where they have to come up with some new rules and regulations. But for you know the, the carbon tax that they collect on gasoline and home heating and the checks that they would be sending out to individuals, that is building on existing systems. So I don't think it would be that difficult to do. You're pretty convincing. Thank how, you. <laughs> how are you not convincing mm -hmm. members of your own party to go along with you? Uh, well, you know, look, it's 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 a political debate, and I would say that there are many conservatives, uh, you know, people involved in conservative policy discussions or free market economists who will agree with me in a conversation like this. But when you get on a debate platform and you're saying this is a job killing tax on everything, you're not really looking for that kind of dialogue. It becomes really partisan and, and divisive. Meanwhile, we have one party, the Conservative Party, that has no plan for climate change and worse, thinks that polluting should be free. I do find it a little bit frustrating that the, these uh, continual comments that as Conservatives we don't believe in climate change. I think that that's, uh, you know, just an easy crutch for them to go back to every single time when we have these debates. Every Conservative member worth their salt who believes in the evidence should be standing up and disagreeing with the, with the absence of leadership from this, from this Conservative leader. Well, I think the Conservatives say that they are, are interested in the climate debate. Uh, Andrew Scheer has said that he's going to bring in a plan that will meet Canada's emissions targets. That 30% reduction target was, in fact, the, the target that Stephen Harper set. Um, but... What they have said is that they don't think that a, a carbon price is the way to achieve it. And that's what really mystifies me, because a carbon price is the most economically conservative way of dealing with the problem of carbon emissions, especially if you're giving the money back as tax cuts or rebates. The Conservatives say they can get there through regulation. Can they? It's possible. You could always have a regulatory solution, but it's going to cost a lot more. The, the problem with regulation is it's more expensive. When Ontario shut down coal plants, which was a regulatory solution to reduce emissions, the estimate is that cost about $150 to $200 per ton uh, to, to reduce emissions. 
uh, and other other things like fuel standards for for vehicles and things like that. Again, they cost two, three, four, five hundred dollars per ton. So the simplest and most cost effective way of reducing emissions is the price on carbon. We heard that from Michael Chong in the conservative leadership debate last year, even. Yeah. <laughs> um, but the membership really did not want to listen to that message or did not feel that that message spoke with them. And we've seen across the country now, whether you're in Alberta and you're hearing from Jason Kenney or you're in Ontario and you're hearing from Doug Ford or even, uh, frankly, even some of the liberals uh, running for re-election uh, out east have decided that people over there don't want to hear that a carbon tax is probably the most efficient way to deal with emissions. So why is that? Well, I think there's two reasons. One is any tax that is a direct tax on consumers, it's very visible and you know therefore very unpop unpopular and it's an, it's an easy target, which is why the GST uh, is very unpopular because it's very visible. You pay it on, on everything that you buy. Whereas you can you can change income tax rates and you can change income tax brackets and, and deductions and credits and the general public doesn't really notice it, even if it has a bigger effect. Uh, it, whereas a visible tax, like a tax on gas, is something that everyone notices. So that's where the opposition comes from. Plus, I don't think conservatives have been taking seriously enough the message that this is not a one-way uh, payment. There is, a, there is a payment in, but then government has to decide what to do with the revenue. And if they give the revenue back, in fact, you know, most people will end up either breaking even or even coming out ahead. So how do we move past the, how do we get people on board? How do we convince people that it isn't in their interest um, to have a price on carbon? I think the only way, frankly, is for people to see the results. Uh, if the federal backstop is brought in and people in Ontario and Saskatchewan and you know, Manitoba, potentially other provinces, start receiving checks, two, three, four hundred dollar checks in the mail, uh, then they'll realize that the four and a half cents a liter that they're paying on gasoline is more than made up for by the money they're receiving back. But I think until people actually see that and believe it, uh, it's going to be a hard it's going to be a hard fight. Thank you. Thank you. Mark Cameron is the executive director of the group Clean Prosperity. He was former Prime Minister Stephen Harper's senior policy advisor. And that's our show. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode on Apple Podcasts, please leave us a review and help me tell my boss that you like what you're hearing. We do love to hear from you. You can reach me through Facebook or Twitter at Althea Raj. That's A-L-T-H-I-A-R-A-J. Follow-up is produced by myself and HuffPost Politics reporter, Zian Lum. Our technical producer is Stephanie Warner. Andre Lau is our executive producer. Have a fantastic week.